0: This episode of Untold Stories, life with a severe autoimmune condition is brought to you by Argenix, a global immunology company committed to improving the lives of people living with severe autoimmune conditions. At Argenix, we listen to patients, caregivers, and advocacy communities to align their aspirations with our innovations in pursuit of a better tomorrow. We welcome this opportunity to honor our commitment by sharing the untold stories of our guests. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Untold Stories, Life with Myasthenia Gravis, a podcast from iHeartRadio in partnership with Argenix. I'm your host, Martine Hackett. I'm an associate professor and director of public health programs at Hofstra University. And as a researcher, professor, and public health expert, I've spent my career studying the complex realities of healthcare disparities and the diverse barriers people face, In this podcast, I'm speaking with real people living with myasthenia gravis, commonly known as MG. Every person with MG has a unique story to tell. By uncovering real life with MG, we will expand the conversation around this condition and its disproportionate effect on underserved communities. In each episode, we'll explore how each MG journey is unique and powerful in its own way. We'll also share tips on self-advocacy and discuss the role community and caregivers play in the lives of people living with MG. Myasthenia gravis is most commonly found in women 20 to 40 years old and men 55 to 75 years old. However, MG affects people of all ages. Our guest today, Anaya, was diagnosed with MG at the age of just 13. She navigated her education with often debilitating symptoms and was treated by doctors who had never even seen anyone diagnosed with MG under the age of 40. Anaya is a recent graduate of Drexel University where she has earned a degree in business administration and public relations. Being diagnosed with myasthenia gravis at the age of 13, Anaya has often had to approach treatment without much information on how someone her age would be affected. Navigating her developing symptoms, she had to give up playing her favorite sports and struggled to keep a sense of normalcy at school. As a result, she has become an amazing advocate for young people living with MG, sharing her story in the hopes of helping other young people facing similar challenges. Hi, Anaya. (laughs) Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. It's so great to be able to talk to you today. So the first question I have for you, Anaya, is you've had MG for almost half of your life. Yeah. At this point. And I think it would be really helpful if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit of the story about, like, when did you first realize that, you know what, something isn't right?
1: Yeah, of course. So I was formally diagnosed when I was 13. But the year before that, I had kind of just hadn't felt right. I was an athlete as a kid, so I played a lot of sports. I was super active. So I think when you're that level of active, you always kind of notice when something's not right. So I immediately noticed when my legs weren't exactly working the way that I was used to them working. I'll never forget. I was at a basketball game and I had fallen. When I went to like pick myself back up, it was like my legs just wouldn't let me I was so embarrassed and I was just like, I don't know what's going on. My dad was my coach. So he had to actually like come off of the bench and like lift me up. But at that point it kind of came and it went. So that happened for about six months. And I think the peak of it where I was like, I said to my parents, was like, no, something's wrong. I was in a softball game and I had like hit a home run and Instead of making it around all the bases, by the time the ball got back into the catcher, I had only barely made it to first base. And it was so bad that I had to get, like, escorted off the field. And as I was walking, like, my legs buckled and I just fell.
0: Mm.
1: And my mom was just like, what's going on? And I was like, I don't know, but we really need to— figure this out now because I'm not one for public embarrassment. So I was like, I don't want this to happen again. So if we could figure this out, that would be great. And I go to the doctor and he's basically just like, I don't think there's anything wrong with her. I think all of this is in her head and she has a lot of stresses in her life and that the stress of her life and her feelings are taking themselves out on her body. So my parents were like immediately... Okay, that's what he said. That's what we're going with. And I was like, I I don't think that's accurate. Like I don't think I have any more stress than any other person I know. So we go to another doctor and she says she thinks I'm having seizures. And My mom works in special education, so she's familiar with what seizures look like. And she's like, "Okay, like I could see how the falling could look like a seizure. I think the only thing where I was like, I'm fully coherent, like I can speak, I can talk, I can look at everyone and everything. Like it's just my body. Right. But I immediately was put on seizure medication. And if anybody knows anything about MG, swallowing was really difficult. I want to say we're six or seven months from the original like issue. So all of my symptoms are progressing. I can't speak as well. I can't swallow. I couldn't eat solid food. My mom had said at the time I lost about like four dress sizes in like six or seven months because I couldn't eat solid food properly. And my mom had got me this pill box. She's like, you're not taking your medication. I was like, I'm not going to take it. I don't think this is right. Even when I was taking the medication, it wasn't doing anything. I'm still falling. My I'm getting much worse now. It's Now it's my arms and my legs and my whole face. Like that entire year, I couldn't smile in pictures because my facial muscles wouldn't work. I couldn't see because my eyelids were very droopy. Like it was just everything was snowballing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, if it was seizures, wouldn't the medication stop me from falling all the time? So, like, that's not really working. She was like, we'll do one more doctor, right? And I want to say a week before she made the appointment, my mom's, like, school district had um, a rare disease fair. And the illness that she saw at the rare disease fair was Gillian Barr. I'm not sure how you say it, but she was like, that looks familiar, So she researched it and she came across the symptoms and was like, that fits. But then right under it is myasthenia gravis. And she was like, this feels closer. So she found the closest specialist to us. We made an appointment. And within 10 minutes of talking to me, he was like, yeah, 100% know what it is.
0: And that led to your final diagnosis of MG.
1: Yeah. And that was over a year after I first started showing symptoms. So then you were told you had a rare disease. What was going through your head? Well, first I was scared. Because we don't know what it is, it could be something completely curable, right? It could be something easily fixed, and I could get back to my life. But the first thing my specialist said was basically like, the way that you're living your life now is not going to be able to be how you continue to live your life.
0: Oh, God. Wow.
1: Even with medication, it may be a while until you can play sports again. It may be a while until you're able to walk regularly again. It may be a while until you can see regularly or speak regularly. So I was scared. Mm-hmm. But I will say, even at the time, I was very numb. I was still very, well, you're going to give me medication and everything's going to be fine. I was the youngest patient he had ever had. Wow. Wow. So he immediately let me know that, like, his usual cocktail that he would use for MG patients, he couldn't use on me because I was 13. And I maybe wanted to have children one day. I was still going through puberty. So there's so many medications that were immediately not on the table for me that would have progressed my treatment faster. There was a lot of adult things that I now had to think about. Like, I want to say a week later... I had to talk about freezing my eggs. I always say that, like, I felt like I grew up overnight after that conversation.
0: Yeah. But then you finally had this diagnosis after, you know, all that time of not knowing. What about your family? How did um, they react to this diagnosis?
1: It was really hard for everyone. For my mom, I think, as moms do, had a plan for what she thought my life would look like. And now this completely throws that off the track. Mm -hmm. So it took her a while to really wrap her head around it and be able to talk about it. For my dad, who coached all of the sports I was playing Mm -hmm. at the time. So he was like, I don't even know what to do with this. Like, I got into coaching because you wanted to play sports because you like sports. He loves coaching. Yes. But Mm -hmm. like, I know he planned on seeing me through my athletic career through high school. So I know that was really hard for him and- hard for me to, like, grieve that part of myself because that was something I knew I wouldn't be able to do anymore. Yeah. So everybody had to, you know, reset, it sounds like,
0: you know, to just figure out, all right, how are we going to live our life now with this information? How do you think that your age played a role with your interaction with your healthcare providers?
1: I will say up until we found my MG specialist, no doctor had ever spoken to me directly. Everything was directed to my mom. Mm. So that really frustrated me. And I was just like, these are questions she can't even answer. She can't answer how I feel or what's happening to my body. So until I spoke to my specialist, I just felt very silenced in the process, which is probably why I rebelled the way that I did and was like, I'm just not going to take anything you give me because you're not speaking to me. He asked like the run of the mill questions and he looked at me and he was like silent for like 10 seconds. And he was like, when you drink things, does it come out your nose? And I was like, yeah, that's not a normal thing. And he was like, no. Then he kind of like rattled off this list of things. and I was like, yes, and yes, and yes. And it was the first time i ever felt anybody was addressing me. Mm -hmm. He didn't mince his words with me because he was a very, you're going through an adult experience. So I'm going to treat you like an adult if that's what you would like. And that's what I wanted. So if things were like hard or harsh, He said it softly, but he still said it, you know, like he didn't beat around the bush or be like, oh, yeah, you're going to feel great after this if that's not true. So, like, I really appreciated that.
0: So continuing thinking about, like, your young age when you're and you're still young, too, by the way, Um, (laughs) how do you think that played a role in that time it took you to get diagnosed?
1: Yeah, I think my age ruled it out. My race ruled it out. Like, I'm a young black girl. Nobody was expecting that. But I also just think, had someone taken the time to ask me what was going on, we might have gotten there sooner.
0: Thinking back in terms, you mentioned that you kind of first realized these symptoms because you were an athlete and you were participating in all these sports. Your dad was your coach. Realizing that athletics, as you said, might not any longer be a part of your life, did you find other hobbies and interests to sort of fill that void?
1: I did, eventually. Being in athletics, I think, It set a really great foundation for who I am as a person and really helped me figure out like the types of things that I was attracted to. Mm -hmm. But I think in spending so much time by myself and spending so much time at home, I went more so down a creative path. I got super into TV. I like started bullet journaling. And so bullet journaling. Yeah. Is that just sort of like capturing your thoughts on paper? or So like you journal, but like you take the time to like put pictures on the page and you rip things out from magazines and words and like you do markers and drawings and stickers and everything. So like, it's a very like time intensive process. So that was a really great way of me to get my thoughts down. I read a lot. I really took to like social media. I didn't have any social media at the time um, when I was diagnosed. And then like, The next year I had like Instagram and Twitter and like everything. So I was had a very fun online friend community that was super helpful that I still have to this day that I was just kind of able to step outside of myself and like immerse myself into something else. And not be thinking about my problems for the mm-hmm. first time. Like, my life isn't block scheduled. I have all this free time to read and write and think. I want to say I wrote, like, a, two novels or something oh my gosh. when Seriously? I was in middle school. Yeah, I, wow. I always really loved writing. And I was like, well, I have the time. Now I'm just going to do it. So I did. It was just a really great outlet that I don't think I would have had the time to explore otherwise.
0: Absolutely. And when you think about that, you mentioned you, you know, sort of started connecting to people via social media. Were you able to connect with other children or
1: teens living with MG? I did not meet anyone with MG until I went to an in-person support group in New York.
0: Wow.
1: Like, even anyone online. Like, and I would put myself out there. I was a very, hi, I'm this age, I have MG, anybody else, and radio silence. silence. Wow. Wow. I'll never forget the first time I walked into the support group meeting. It was in the hospital. And my mom and I drove from New Jersey. So it was like a two-hour drive. Mm -hmm. So I go, and I go to the room that's, like, on the email that we got. And, like, I look through, like, the little glass peephole on the door. And everyone there is, like, 60-plus. And so, like, I got scared, and I was like, I think I might be in the wrong place so I just turn around and I walk away and like as I'm going back to get in the elevator my mom's coming up the elevator she's like well why didn't you go in and I was like I think we're in the wrong place and she was like no we're not come on so she like drags me back over to the room and she like we go in and like I introduce myself and they're like how old are you and I want to say I was 14 at the time And they were they were incredible groups, so welcoming, so loving. I'm in touch with some of them still now. Wonderful. But it was so scary. I feel like in that moment, I was like, "Am I really by myself in this? Like, is anybody else experiencing what I'm experiencing?" Because for a lot of them, they didn't get diagnosed until they were in their fifties or their forties, so they didn't have to go through puberty, go through college, go through like their careers. With a rare disease. Like for most of them, they were like, I didn't get diagnosed until I was retired. And then in addition to the struggle of not finding
0: peers in your age group with MG, you were also still going to school with a rare disease and navigating a familiar world in a new way. Tell me about that experience. Where did you find the need to advocate for yourself the most?
1: Navigating my school system was the hardest thing that I had to do during that time. Because the thing was, part of it was that They thought because I was physically disabled, I was also mentally disabled or I had some kind of learning disability as well. I did testing every other semester to, like, prove that I didn't have a learning disability. And they were still like, oh, like, no, like, you're fine. I was like, I know my body not working the way that I would like it to or not working, quote unquote, properly has nothing to do with my mental capability. So, like, no matter what we said, it was like nobody was listening to that part of it. So it was very difficult for me to kind of get the education that I wanted. So like there were times where my mom and I had to really fight to get put in like an honors class or an AP class where I had the grades, I had the work, but the teachers were like, well, she doesn't come to class, so I can't put her in this class. So like that was really difficult. I just don't think anybody realized how quickly you can fall behind when you're only in school two days a week even with me understanding everything that was going on, I was still just missing the lessons. You're missing the conversational part, right? You're missing interacting with your peers and engaging in debates and conversations or like the learning games that you would get to play to really like enrich what you're learning. Mm -hmm. Like even with all of the best tutoring and instructing, that's still such a crucial part that I wasn't getting.
0: We'll be back with more untold stories, life with myasthenia gravis, after a quick break. As a global immunology company committed to improving the lives of people living with severe autoimmune diseases, Argenix is dedicated to partnering with advocacy organizations, including the Muscular Dystrophy Association and Muscular Dystrophy Canada in support of the MG community. The Muscular Dystrophy Association, or MDA, aims to transform the lives of people affected by neuromuscular disorders through funding for breakthrough research, providing care from day one, and empowering families with support. For more information about the MDA, visit www.mda.org. Muscular Dystrophy Canada, or MDC, is committed to enhancing the lives of Canadians with neuromuscular disorders by continually working to provide ongoing support and resources and relentlessly seeking cures through well-funded research. MDC invites Canadians with MG to participate in a survey related to their experience. If you or someone you know may be interested, email the MDC at research at muscle.ca. And for additional information about MDC, visit www.muscle.ca. And now, back to Untold Stories Life with Myasthenia Gravis. Obviously, you graduated high school. um, Yes. But was that at risk at any time, considering the struggle that you mentioned in terms of the level of instruction that you were getting?
1: So, I was never afraid of graduating. What I was afraid of actually was getting into college. Because I had been sick for so long. I didn't have extracurriculars. I didn't have an amazing GPA. Like, I had a great one. I had an okay, pretty good SAT score, but, like, not, like, on the highest percentile, right? Mm-hmm. So I was so worried about standing out amongst all of these people who have had these amazing high school careers, right? The athletes, and you played this instrument, and you did this, and you went here. And I was like, I just don't have that. And I have to present myself in a way that explains, though I don't have that, I'm still exceptional. And that was the scary part. So I think just the accomplishment of graduating high school was something amazing for me, just because at so many points in my high school career— People didn't necessarily want that to be something that happened for me. And I know a lot of other people with rare diseases have that same experience of people thinking that your only thing that you should be doing is surviving and that you shouldn't be thriving. And so, I mean, reflecting back now as a recent
0: college graduate, um, can you think about what you might have gained from that
1: experience? I will never pass up an opportunity to do something, because I spent so much time at home dreaming about being able to do so many things. So I'm never going to take for granted having an opportunity to do anything. It's gotten me very far in college, internships and opportunities. And I will say the second thing is I'm very good at advocating for myself. I'm very good at like, no, this is what I mean. This is what I need. and This is what I need you to do for me. Being in that scenario, you have to learn that like, My mom can only come to the school and meet with you guys so many times. At some point, I'm going to have to speak for myself. So I had to figure out how to do that from the time I was 13 to the time I graduated high school. And can you talk a little bit more about that? What was what
0: is advocating for yourself, especially at that age? What did that look like?
1: I think for me, I think it was very putting my foot down and just saying no to something or for the first time in my life, being able to say I can't do that. And I think when you're a kid, especially when you're an athlete, I can't is not something you ever say. Mm -hmm. So having to learn how to say not only no, but I can't do that. That's pushing me past my physical limit. And the repercussions of doing that is going to be so much worse than if I do it. So I cannot do that. And I'm saying no. I think that's really been the most important thing of learning my body and learning when my body says to stop and making sure that I put myself in the position to be able to read my body well. And I also think it taught me a certain level of just understanding other people and that I came across a lot of people who just didn't understand what I was going through. And in the beginning, I got mad at people who didn't understand what I was going through. But as I kind of went through the experience and I got older, I just realized I can't get mad at somebody for not understanding an experience they've never had. Then it was hard to make friends for a while just because you don't want people to be friends with you out of pity. You don't want people to be friends with you because they think you need help. Like, you want people to be friends with you because they like you or because they enjoy spending time with you. So it was really difficult for me to, like, solidly make friends and have a group of friends because I was like, are you friends with me because you want to be? And then that kind of led to a point in my life where I was like letting anybody treat me however they wanted because I was so happy to have friends again.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so it took a while for me to be able to be like, no, you deserve to have friends, whether you're disabled or not, whether you have this illness or not, and good friends will treat you well.
0: And how did that go when you made that once you made that decision?
1: It was really hard. I cut a lot of people out of my life, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I think being a person with a disability has always made it seem like the person with a disability has to be the bigger person. And it's taken these last, I want to say two or three years of college for me to be like, I don't always have to be the bigger person. I can decide that I don't want to deal with something and not deal with it, right? And I think it's just, it's difficult to frame your mind like that because there was a time period of Two or three years, right? I just didn't have anyone. Mm. So the friends and people that I do have in my life, I hold on to very tightly and very dearly. But on the flip side, you have to make sure that you're keeping people around for the right reason and that you have the support system. Because when my MG does flare. My parents are in New Jersey. The only people I have around me are my friends. So I need them to help me pull me up by my bootstraps. I need them to take me to the hospital and know what medications I have and be able to help me advocate for myself if I can't. And I just had incredible people. My partner was very transparent. Uh, My partner's also disabled. So she understands kind of the nuance of it all. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, it's... Such an amazing thing to be able to be that kind of vulnerable with your chosen people, right? Like see me fall or to see me not be able to talk or in a hospital bed with a million and one things attached to me or in the emergency room with me when I'm like, hey, I think something's about to go bad here. And to have those people not turn away from you. And just embrace you and be there for you has been a really amazing thing that I'm um, so grateful to experience.
0: Like you said, that's how you know who are your real people. Exactly. Um, and when that did happen, I mean, you had your support, but then you also probably had to deal with the doctors now in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you know, without your mom. How did that process go or standing up for yourself with the doctors in in that different situation?
1: At first it was a little scary because when I had flares and things back at home, we always went to the same hospital that my specialist was at. So I was never scared of going to the hospital then. But now it's a little bit different because now I'm an adult. I think the biggest part of like understanding that transition and like being able to be a good advocate for myself is that I know my own medical history cover to cover. So that makes it a lot easier for physicians and doctors to take me seriously because I know that everything I'm saying once you pull up my chart is exact And just having to like be able to say like i've experienced this a million times for the last 10 years I know exactly what this is. That's why I came And how did they react
0: to that? I mean wow (laughs) to have a young person kind of coming in and being like look Let me tell you this is what's going on
1: Some of them were very taken aback Like very much taken aback. Some of the nurses did not enjoy me because I was just very, I know exactly what I need. I've been in this situation dozens of times. Mm. So I know exactly what I'm gonna need once I get there. So like I admittedly get very impatient because like I know what each step is going to be, but I still have to wait for all of like the paperwork to catch up to what's happening. But they're usually quite taken aback that I'm prepared. I never look scared or anything. And I think for some of them in the emergency room, because I always go through the emergency room, they've, some of them have never even heard of MG, mm. right? So you have to learn about it from me, which I know is frustrating. So that's part of it. And I think the other part of it is just, I'm going to say something if you're doing something outside of the normal route of treatment, Like, you can't try something here. You can't delay something here. Like, I know exactly what's supposed to happen. And if anything outside of that happens, you're going to hear from me. And I think that creates a certain level of stress for them just because they're like, I have no wiggle room in this scenario. And I was like, that is absolutely right. You have none. And obviously you
0: have, like you said, all that experience, but, you know, based on those experiences, though, there are other BIPOC people or people from marginalized communities with MG who might not have that same kind of confidence and ability to to do that and to overcome Mm -hmm. those disparities um, that they are encountering. So what are some of those things that you would recommend that people in that situation do?
1: I think a big part of it is, one, I never go to the hospital by myself. Mm -hmm. Somebody needs to be there with me. That's always been super important because I always have somebody be able to say, like, yes, that doctor said that. Yes, they treated you like this. Or yes, they did this. It's not just my word for it. Like I said, another really big thing is just always knowing my medical history cover to cover. And knowing, like, when you ask this question, I have an answer. Like, there's never, I don't know. Because... I don't think we, there's room for and I don't know. So and I, if you could give advice to a young person
0: with an MG diagnosis who might be listening today, what would that be?
1: I think the first thing I would say is to take everything in stride. It seems like a very daunting process to get diagnosed and start the medications and do all of this stuff. But listen to yourself and listen to your body you know what's going on in your body better than anybody else. Secondly, having a support system beyond your parents is really important Mm -hmm. because I love my parents so much and they were so supportive through this whole process. But I think a really big part of what our relationship became during the time was that for them, it was like we were all experiencing MG together. Mm -hmm. But for me, I was the only one that actually had it. I was the only one with the symptoms and the struggles and the problems. So it's important to have peers, even if they aren't experiencing what you're experiencing. They're your age mates and they think like you. They understand how your brain works and what thought process you're going through. I think the last thing I would say is take the time to mourn yourself and then take the time to learn yourself again. I've always said that if I could redo my life, I would not remove MG from my story. Wow. I think it's made me an incredible person. I think it's changed the trajectory of who I was going to become in the best way. I think it's made me stronger in so many ways. I think it's shifted my perspective on so many things. So I think it's important to know that no matter how hard it gets— you are going to come out on the other side of it better because you spend so much time learning yourself. So take the time to learn what you like. What do you want to do? Who are you with this illness? Who are you without it? I think it's really, really important to embrace MG in your life and not villainize it. hmm and kind of just take it with you as you move because it's a chronic illness, you'll have it forever. Even if you're not showing symptoms, it's always gonna be there. So I think it's just really important to kind of just relearn who you are with MG and become okay with that person so that you're not somebody who sits in self-hatred because of that part of yourself.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anaya. That's advice that I think any adult should have (laughs) is just to be able to take that time to know yourself. And Mm -hmm. you know what? Who you were as a young person might not be the person that you are now, even if you don't have a rare disease. And so it sounds like you absolutely have grown from this experience in a way that makes you who you are. And that's a pretty awesome person.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really glad to just be able to talk about it and hopefully have a lot of people resonate with me and my story, and kind of take MG for what it is and keep pushing forward.
0: ANAYA'S JOURNEY HAS ALREADY BEEN FILLED WITH SO MUCH TRIUMPH, OVERCOMING THE OBSTACLES OF MG WHILE CONTINUING TO GROW INTO AN INSPIRING YOUNG DISABLED WOMAN. FROM DEALING WITH INDECISION, FROM DOCTORS, TO LEARNING HOW TO HAVE THE STRENGTH AND COURAGE TO FIND HER PLACE IN THE WORLD, ANAYA IS A SHINING EXAMPLE OF PERSEVERANCE. For many, regardless of age, navigating MG is a difficult and confusing time. But from Anaya's story, I know I have learned how important it is to ask questions and to trust your support system and intuition. Thanks again to Anaya for sharing her story today. Please join us again next week for a very special episode of Untold Stories. Untold Stories, Life with Myasthenia Gravis is produced by iHeartRadio in partnership with Argenics and Closer Look, and hosted by me, Martine Hackett. Our executive producer is Molly Sosha. Our EP of post production is Matt Stillo. And our producer is Sierra Kaiser. This episode was edited by Sierra Spreen and written and produced by Tyree Rush.